And prayer is a very personal thing. It's a community thing. It's, it's, it's such a wide topic. But we're going to look at Daniel's prayer today in Daniel chapter 9. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Everybody needs a Bible. Daniel's prayer. Billy is uh, challenging us, uh, and uh, we want to grow this church. We want to plant new churches. We want to make disciples. And we get into the why of all the why, why. Why? Why do we do this? It's because we love people, and we know that God loves people, and God wants to build his kingdom. And we pray, thy kingdom come. And we are the builders. We are the ones that are not only the stones of that temple, of the church, and you are beautiful stones. You are beautiful, hand-cut with a tool, but you are cut by God to fit in this body. And we have hands and feet, and the, you know the feet can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, and, and the foot says to the hand, well, I don't need you. You know, we don't do that. We don't argue that way. We need each other, and everybody here fits. And throughout our history, we need to know our history. We'll just say that. You need to know history. And the Bible is full of history, and it reveals to us the, the, I just call it kind of the wavelengths of culture. The latter rain has come. Um, And culture throughout history kind of goes in wavelengths. There's cultural uh, ascension, and, and things seem to be going well in culture. And then there's cultural decay because of rampant sin, usually the sins of leaders, the people of God have forgot God, and, and the culture declines. So how many of you think that we are in a cultural ascension right now, and our culture is being built up in God, and there's revival going on, and God is in our land, and, and our culture is rising? Nobody. How many think that our culture is in decay and we're on a downward trajectory? Right. So we all kind of know what's happening. We know what's going on. Then the other question is, how many of you really care about that? How many of you really want to do something about it? Amen. We all do. I do. You do. We can make a difference. And there are things that can happen. So when we get into the heart of someone like Daniel, when we get into the heart of someone like Nehemiah, they are captured with this idea that God wants me, God wants me to make a difference to build up the people of God and to build up the church, to build up who God is and why God is doing what God is doing. And God wants me to be involved in that. And that's what leadership is. It's, it's knowing that you make a difference, you you make a difference in the building of this kingdom of God. And you play a vital role in that process. So we need to know our history. This history begins, I'll just pick a point in history. I'll go a thousand years before Jesus. And a thousand years before Jesus, King David is on the throne. And these are somewhat of the glory years of Israel. King David is in power he is uh, managing the country well. King David is a popular king. He's, he's a man after God's heart. He's doing everything right. And under King David, Israel kind of has their glory days. And it's the picture of what the kingdom could be like when there's a king who really has an undivided heart after God. And so David is growing the kingdom. And during the time of David, around what's known as the city of David which is Jerusalem, and I don't want you to be confused. Jerusalem has a lot of names in the Bible, and they're good names. There are names like uh, Mount Zion and Mount Moriah and uh, the city of David, Jerusalem, uh, the Holy Hill, it's sometimes called, the Temple Mount. All this is the exact same spot, the same area, which is just this about 10 acres of land where King David began his reign and settled in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, Zion, Mount Moriah, it's all the same spot. And when we talk about Zion, we talk about the city of God. 
It is, the, it is God's place where the, the people of God gather and the kingdom of God is good and we grow together in community. It's a very hilly place. It's difficult to build walls and gates on, but David starts to build the walls that encompass Jerusalem. And the walls represent protection and represents God's provision, that we live in community. And it's not that we're walled in in some kind of strange, uh, cultic kind of sense. It's walled in for protection, that we will be God's people and we will know that God loves us under that protection. The way God loves us is by protecting. The way a man, the way a man, Michael, the way a man loves a woman is you protect her and you provide for her. And we get this from Scripture. God protects us in his love for us, and God provides for us. So David is getting older. He knew his time was coming to an end. So he's going to pass on this beautiful kingdom to his son Solomon. And to Solomon, David says, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Know him and serve him with an undivided heart. And Solomon started out so well. (laughs) It was great. Smart guy, wise guy. He builds the temple. So then the temple area starts to include the walls. And the city of David expands to the Temple Mount area. And so I'm just kind of trying to paint a picture of you of, of what the walled city of Jerusalem starts to look like. And it includes more acreage. And Solomon builds the temple, and Solomon includes this hill called Mount Moriah, which is the exact hill where 2,000 years before Jesus, Abraham ascends the hill with his son Isaac, the heir. And this is the exact spot where, where Abraham is walking up the hill, and Isaac says, Oh, oh Father, where, where are we going? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And he goes, Isaac sees no lamb. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. And he's bound. And God provides a lamb. And the beloved heir, the son of, of Abraham and Sarah, is Isaac, who then is spared on that hill. And it's a holy hill. That is the exact spot where the Temple Mount is is built. Today, there's a Muslim mosque that resides over the, the spot where the tabernacle, where the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, so it's a very uh, precious, holy spot for, for Christians and for Jews. And it is being desecrated now over these last 700 or so years with a Muslim mosque. We could talk about, does that represent the abomination that causes desolation? Possibly, we'll leave that up to scholars and, and Bible. Uh-oh. Hope we're okay. Is he up there by himself? <laughs> All right, is he okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So we're talking about this area, the holy city. And Solomon does well. People come from all over. Celebrities come to see him. Other leaders come to to hear Solomon's wisdom. Even that big shot, the queen of Sheba. (laughs) I always think it's interesting, you know, in the Bible. Well, guess who came to see Solomon? The queen of Sheba. She must have been something. So Solomon then, as you know, begins to compromise in his faith. And he starts marrying a bunch of wives. I don't know why. It wasn't so much the, the who as what kind of wives. These were pagan wives. These were not Jewish. They, they, they were starting to intermingle in their faith, which is worse than if they were Jewish. It just wasn't supposed to be this way. And then upon all these wives, 
he added a bunch of concubines. Well, that's a fun word, concubine. What's a concubine? Well, ask your mom and dad. (laughs) You can all figure that out. And so his sinful compromising and mingling with pagan culture, this is the real problem here, results in big trouble. And Solomon finally dies. The kingdom of God splits. We split into northern kingdom where they are ruled over the next hundreds of years by really bad kings who forget God and who turn to idol worship and all kinds of crazy things. And then the southern kingdom is ruled by Rehoboam, who is not that great of a king. southern kingdom actually has some good kings, mostly bad kings. And over the next decades, we fall into idol worship and the worship of false gods. The northern kingdom falls first, is taken into captivity by the Assyrians over time, They are absorbed into various cultures of the world. And the southern kingdom falls later, and they are deported by the Babylonians. This is interesting. It's like God is saying, okay, because you have this desire for idolatry, God says, you want idols? I'll send you to idol central. (laughs) Babylon. You're all going to Babylon now, and you can have as many idols as you want. In fact, you just get your fill of idols. And that's where the people of God, the southern kingdom, lives in captivity for 70 long years, as prophesied by Jeremiah. Which brings us now to the book of Daniel. So we need to know our history because cultures will be always on a wavelength of going kind of up and down culturally And just because we're living in this culture now doesn't mean there hasn't been bad cultures in the past and so on and so forth. So we we tend, I, I think it's just our nature to feel like we're living in the worst times of all of history, but we're really not. There are there were much worse times in history where the people of God had to live through. But we are we we could say that we're on a downward trend. So the question now becomes. Well, how do we pray? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And because of Daniel, this is a a beautiful story, Daniel, the book of Daniel starts to give us insight into how you can influence the king of an idolatrous nation. And Daniel interprets dreams, and God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar, and he turns to God because of Daniel. But he didn't successfully pass on this legacy of believing in God, and he has this awesome, I mean this awful, not awesome, this awful grandson named Belshazzar, and he goes out of his way to mock God uh, that his grandfather believed in. And you remember the story of Belshazzar where he is uh, drinking from the vessels from the temple of God from Jerusalem. He is using these vessels and he's mocking our God, And he's shaking his fist at our God. And then he sees the hand writing on the wall. It's one of my favorite stories. Whatever that looked like, it must have been freaky. And and the, the words are interpreted, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found lacking, Belshazzar. And little did he know that that very night he would die and that the Persians would come in and swoop in and conquer Babylon. And then Cyrus, the Persian, would become king over Babylon. And in 536 B.C., by the grace of God, Cyrus allows the first wave of Jews to go back into Jerusalem. And this is an awesome moment. And this is where we pick up this story of Daniel. Now, history is important. Because when we read history, we start to understand what what is the big deal? What's the big deal here about Daniel and Nehemiah? It's because their their house has been torn down. It'd be like your, your home. It'd be like your hometown has been completely decimated. 
and you go there and you realize it's now a ghost town and there's nobody there and there's no, there's no protection, there's no provision, there's no water. It's, it's all been torn down and God in some way has put upon you this desire to say, I can, I can make a difference here. I can rebuild this. I can, I can restore this. And so the history here is that the last, the last 170 years of the Old Testament are about the resettling and the repairing of the gates and the walls of Jerusalem that have been burned down. Why? So that the people of God would have their city and that God would live with them and be their God. It's the place that God has given to us. It's a foreshadowing of Revelation 21, verse 3, where the city of God comes down and God will be with them and God will be their God. He will live with them and be their God. That is the heart of every, I think it's the heart of every human being, that we be, that we are with God, we live with God. God has put eternity into our hearts. And that eternity that God has put into our hearts is this desire to want to be with him. And it's receiving the desire from God that God wants to be with us. So the relevance for us today, basically, is that history is important. And history will always be this time of God calling to his people, build build the church, build the city, build my kingdom, my kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is what our prayer is. This is what is in our heart. So Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the 170 years of the resettling of the city of God. So now I want to turn to Daniel's prayer. Because within this prayer captures what really should be our motivation for living as the people of God within the church. So I'm going to give probably a dozen points. Some of you love to take notes, and I'll try to be, I'll try to be note-worthy <laughs> of, of the uh, points I make. I might get lost a little bit because of the, the numbers of the Scripture, the, the verses, and so on and so forth, but I'll try my best. So we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to go through this prayer because there's so many elements of this prayer that I need in my prayer life, that you need in your prayer life. And it's really a proper understanding of how to pray. And we're going to use this as as a great example. So point number one I would make as we look at Daniel chapter 9, we'll we'll begin with verse 2. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures. This is important. Point number one is that we we position ourselves in prayer by reading scripture first. Scripture should always guide our prayer. The word of God is the only window we have with which to see God. This is the revelation of God, this book, the Word of God. To see the works of God, to see the knowledge of God, our God is a God of His Word. He's a God of His Word. He is true to this Word. Somebody once said that if if prayer is a train, then Scripture is the tracks that the train runs on. I've always liked that. I don't remember who said that. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. And that time is up. So Daniel's like, hey, I'm supposed to do something now. 70 years has passed. Point number two would be we follow the Scripture's lead in what we should pray for. That's the point. So he turns to the Lord 
and pleaded with him in prayer and petition. So the first two points are about scripture guiding us in prayer. Point number three is also extrapolated from verse three. We pray humbly. It says he prayed with petition in fasting, prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. That simply means that when we pray, we go as humbly low as possible because we are in the, in the presence of the highest of the high. So we position ourselves in humility, in sackcloth and ashes. That just simply means in a state of mourning almost, in a state of need, in a state of complete desire that we would go before God, the God of the universe, that we would even have the audacity to think we could have a, an audience with God is, is, is awesome and amazing. So point number three is that we pray humbly, recognizing our utter unworthiness before God. <clears throat> point number four is also extrapolated from verse four. <clears throat> I pray to the Lord my God, <clears throat> excuse me, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commandments. Point number four is that we begin prayer by praising God for his attributes, his love, his greatness, his faithfulness. It's God's character. It's how we know that this is God. That provides the context for prayer. That God is the center of gravity. (laughs) That God is our north star. God gives us direction. We, We don't know where we are without the north star. That we are not the middle of the universe. That he is the I am. He is the all in all. I mean, we're before a holy God, our holy God. So Daniel prays and confesses about the greatness and awesome power of God. Point number five, excuse me, point number five is found in verse five. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. And we have rebelled. In approaching God, we always recognize our, our sinfulness, our sinfulness, our sin. I want to be really important. This is very important because some of us pray too selfishly. It's not about us. It's about the we. Christian pronouns in prayer are always we, our, and us. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Christian pronouns in prayer are to be we, our, and us. And we really notice this in Daniel's prayer and especially in Nehemiah's prayer. We confess our sins. Your sin, as I pray, is my sin. Does that make sense? We, we take full responsibility without rationalization, without spin, without self-exemption. We confess our sins, our sins. It's not the president's fault the sin of this world. It's not the governor's fault. It's not the mayor's fault. It's not the city council's fault. It's not my neighborhood association president's fault. It's not the preacher's fault. It's not my wife's fault. (laughs) 
Not my husband's fault. You know, after, after 40 years of being a pastor, I can tell you what happens when people walk in and want to talk. This is basically what is said. Hey, pastor, if out there would change, my life would be better. If out there would change, my life would be so much better. If, if he would change, my life would be so much better. If she would change, my life would be better. If, if the government would change, our lives would be so much better. If out there would change, man, I would have a great life. Well, you, you know where that's going. It, it doesn't change. With this wavelength, sometimes it goes up a little bit, sometimes it goes down. It's not going to change. We have sinned. Daniel prays. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We have rebelled. I really want to take a, 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 I want to take a break here. Something really hit me the last few weeks over this uh, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie debacle. I think what hit me the most about, and I don't know if, you've, if you all know this story, but it's this young couple who are being filmed all through their trip out west, and it ends up with this guy murdering the girl, and he ends up committing suicide. It's a murder-suicide. It's, it's, a, it's a visual, and it was, a, it was all played out on social media, of watching two people go to hell. Everybody watched. And I kept thinking to myself, why is this so, why is it always in the news? Why is this so newsworthy? There's other, and I think it's because they were kind of popular on social media and they had a lot of followers. And now, now that it's all over with, people are saying, well, of course, we, we saw it coming. We saw these two people, and I, it just hit me, man, that's my sin. That's our sin. Their death, their, their murder, their suicide is on all of us as a nation who let that happen. I hope, I pray, somebody through social media tried to witness to them and shared the love of Jesus that you don't have to live this way. You don't have to end up this way. You don't have to fight this way. You don't have to... You, where was the church? Where, that is our sin as a, as a nation that drove them to do what they did. Where were the parents? Where was the church? Where, where, who stepped in? Everybody saw it coming. And it was like, oh, sleeper, wake up. There are young people on social media that we are watching destroy their lives. Does any of us enter in and say, whoa, stop. Stop what you're doing. You need Jesus Christ in your life or you're going to die and you're going straight to hell. Now, I don't know if, you know, I'm not going to be here judging whether they went to heaven or hell, but for all indications they, they are two young people that, that went to hell, and we all watched it. Then, in the midst of this, Thomas Hazelwood enters a fraternity party at UK, farmhouse fraternity, drinks himself to death. That's in our backyard. What's going on here? Well, people say, well, you know... <laughs> Those fraternities. No. Maybe he walked by our Bible reading. Maybe he was invited to UCF by, by one of our students. We don't know. All we know is he's dead. Well, there's, they're having an investigation. <laughs> they, don't, they don't need an investigation. I can tell you exactly what happened. He went to a fraternity party and got into one of these drinking competition games, and he drank he drank himself to death. Investigation's over. That's what happened. Why do we need an investigation? And where is the church? That sin 
at UK, I hope you're getting my point here, is on us. It's on all of us. The sin in our culture is on us. The sin in Jessamine County is on us. We live here. So we pray, God, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. Daniel is probably an upstanding, godly man. But he's praying this in the we. All of the sin in Jessamine County rests on us. Do you follow this? This is the we. Our. Us. The sin of this culture. Number six. Point number six, we permeate prayer with affirmation of God's amazing grace and our profound gratitude. We never ask for what we deserve, (laughs) but we thank God that he has given us infinitely better than what we deserve. So we move from confession of local and national world sin that rests on all of us to verse 7. Lord, you are righteous. This is point number 6. Lord, you are righteous, but we are covered with shame. You have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled, we have not obeyed. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. This is such a deep, deep repentance that it it should bring us to tears. Oh God, oh God, we need you desperately in our lives. We are covered with shame. Point number seven. As we bring our request to God, we repeatedly affirm God's worthiness and our unworthiness. We never forget who we are. We are unworthy. God is worthy. Prayer should never be the means to an end. We don't approach God in prayer with some kind of list of things we want, or I want. I want what God wants. Prayer is not the means to an end. Prayer is the end. In fact, write that down. Prayer is not the means to an end. Prayer is the end. Being with God, talking with God, being in God's presence. Prayer is is being with God. That's the end of it. That's enough. Now, because God is a loving Father, He hears us and He wants to bless us. But it's, not our, it's, not, it's never to be our motive to tell God what to do. Or to say, I'm going to get to the end of this prayer and give God my list, my to-do list, and my want list, my Christmas list. Prayer is being with God. Verse 11. This is point number seven. This is verse 11. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of of Moses have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you, You have fulfilled the word spoken by bringing upon us great disaster, just as it is written in the law of Moses. All this disaster has come upon us. It's we. Point number eight. We never blame God for sin. We never blame God for sin's consequences or life's hardship. So Daniel prays. This is in verse 12. 
under the whole heaven. Nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all of this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. So there it is. It's spelled out specifically in Leviticus, I think, chapter 26. It's spelled out in Deuteronomy. God says, if you go after idols, if you go after other gods, I will scatter you. I will break you up. I'll I'll put you in different parts of the earth. That's not my will. I am God. You shall have no other gods besides me. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord is righteous in everything, and we have not obeyed him. Point number nine. Point number nine. We make requests in the light of God's past acts of faithfulness. This is one of the great this is one of the great character traits of God. God loves to be reminded of his greatness <laughs> and how awesome he is by specifically mentioning the acts that God has demonstrated in scripture. I I love this about God. We approach God and all of the great prophets pray this way. God, you created, you created heaven and earth. <laughs> you know how awesome that is? Everything we see, God, you created. God, remember when you chose Abraham? That was awesome. You, you picked that guy. Abraham, believed, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the birth of faith. In the heart of Abraham. God, that was awesome how you chose Abraham. God, remember, God, remember when you we brought us out of Egypt? Man, that was awesome. You brought us out of Egypt. You had to deal with Pharaoh, the whole an entire, the entire Egyptian government. God, you did such amazing things in that whole process when you brought us out of Egypt. God, that was awesome. Remember when you led us through the wilderness? Man, how'd you do that with the bread? How did you do that with the manna? And the quail, they just fell out of the sky. <laughs> how did you do that? God, that was awesome. Your, your mighty hand. You did such great things, God. God, remember when you gave Israel the promised land? Man. When they came in, that was so beautiful. God, that was awesome. God, remember you gave us Zion. You gave David the holy hill. God, you gave us prophets. Prophets to remind us whose we are. God, you are awesome in your power. God, remember, remember, when, remember when God saved you as Kurt, as Kurt was leading communion? Remember when God saved you? Man. How awesome. I mean, God, thank you. God, remember... God, remember when you healed me? Remember when you, you brought our church through this? God, remember, remember when you raised up Billy Henderson? <laughs> God, that was awesome. God, remember when you raised up the church? God, remember when you protected me through that time? God, remember when I was so stuck? I was just stuck. I couldn't live another day, God, and you brought me through that time. Remember? Remember that, God? God loves to be reminded of God's greatness. And so Daniel prays, Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned and done wrong. You see how repentance follows this prayer all the way through. It's repentance, repentance, and confession. O Lord, in keeping touch with all of your righteous acts, 
You're a good God, and we know that you want to turn your anger and your wrath away from Jerusalem and bring your people home. Build your kingdom. Point number 10. Pray for God's sake, his glory and his reputation. Reminding yourself all throughout prayer that it's not about us, but it's all about him. It's all about him. Verse 17. Our sins, the iniquities of our fathers, have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, O Lord our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. All this is backdrop. All this is background. All this is presenting ourselves before God. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Lord, give ear. Open your eyes. See the desolation of the city that bears your name. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act for your sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So point 11 is that we pray with heartfelt recognition of God's undeserved grace on behalf of ourselves. Undeserved grace. You're a good heavenly father. We know you. We know you. We know you want to pour your grace out. Forgive us. Forgive us. Point number 12. This is when it gets exciting. God hears our prayers and starts responding to them when we pray with Daniel's attitude, with Daniel's perspective. Before we can see results, (laughs) look at verse 20, chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, just stop right there. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel. He comes to me in swift flight. (laughs) He doesn't just meander in. Hello. (laughs) He comes in swift flight. And God deploys angels on missions in response to humble, biblically-based God-centered prayer. God comes in the form of these majestic, militaristic angels almost to do battle on our behalf to make this request be answered. How awesome is that? While I'm still in prayer, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. And God gives the vision. And what we understand is that prayer mobilizes righteous angels who wage war against the fallen angels with kingdom claims at stake. Answers to prayer may be hastened or delayed as a result of this warfare. Now, that's not up to us. But as we pray, as we pray for the church, as we pray for the rebuilding of the church, God deploys angels on our behalf, and they do battle. They do battle over Jessamine County. They do battle over Fayette County. There's a, there's a spiritual battle, as you all know, going on. And as we pray, even as we begin to pray, these angels are, mo- are mobilized. And they go out and do the work. Is this awesome? Let's finish up just by going over to chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, 
Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now I want to go to Nehemiah's prayer, because that relates to Nehemiah's prayer. Go back to Nehemiah. We don't know why Nehemiah is tucked way back here in the Bible, because it should be near the end, chronologically. Go to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're just going to briefly go through this prayer, because it's similar. It's almost identical. In all the points that have been made, this is almost an identical prayer that Nehemiah prays. I want to point out just a few points in here. The first thing I want to point out in the Nehemiah prayer in chapter 1 is it's very curious that in the first verse of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, in the very first verse, the month is given. It's kind of odd. It says, in the month of Kislev. Well, that's interesting. You know, the Bible many times talks about years, but it, does, it very seldom mentions months. Then you look at chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, well, in the month of Nisan. So the months bracket chapter 1. Kislev is November. Nisan is March, November, December, January, February, five months. I think what the writer Nehemiah wants us to know here is that he prayed chapter one for five months. That's really the point here. This prayer is not just a one-time prayer. It's not just a week of fasting in November. This is great, and we need to do that, and we will do that. And I hope this teaching on prayer motivates us throughout our fast, which is coming up. But can we do this for five months? Could we pray Nehemiah chapter 1 for five months, weeping? When I heard these things, chapter chapter 1, verse 4, when I heard these things, what did he hear about? The desolation of the walls being torn down, The gates were burned with fire. Jerusalem is in utter destruction. The first wave of Jews have gone in and tried to start putting things back together. And Nehemiah is hearing about what's going on in Jerusalem. When I heard these things, verse 4, I sat down and wept. Many years ago, William Booth who's the founder of the Salvation Army. He was getting letters from a lot of his preachers, and they were complaining that they weren't seeing many converts. They weren't seeing people come to know Jesus. And they, they wanted some kind of inspiration from William Booth, help us, we don't know what to do. People are not coming to Jesus anymore. William Booth wrote them a two-word response. All he wrote was, try tears. Try tears. And I, and I, I love that because it, it really gets to how much do we, do we weep over the lost? How much do we humble ourselves before God and fast and the, the, old, the old word used to be groan. We groan for God. Are we groaning for God? Are we in mourning? Are we really in mourning over the death of a college student due to drinking too much alcohol? Are we in mourning over the, the, the depravity of the sin that is in our county? Try tears. 
And I'm just going to read through this prayer, and you can kind of solidify in your mind the points that were made about prayer. Then I prayed, Nehemiah, verse 5, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, the one that is praying before you day and night. I could, I could include for five months for your servants, the people of Israel. Because I know that your, your people matter to you, God. I know that you love your people. And I know that you are great in your love. I confess the sins we I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. God, you're awesome. In your past, the way you dealt with Moses, that was awesome saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Again, that's Leviticus 26, verse 33. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name, the holy hill, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of protection. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant, that's Nehemiah, give me success today. And my specific request is that you grant the king to favor me. Somehow, God, change the king's heart that I would be sent to help my people. Go to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. After five months, the king said to me, what do you want? There it is! That's the breakthrough. That's God changing the heart of the king. What do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his his sight, let him send me. The answer to the prayer, if you're willing to pray it, Lord, our people are lost without you. We know, God, that it bothers you. Lord, would you send me? Would you send me into Jessamine County? Would you send me to Asbury? Would you send me to downtown Nicholasville? Would you send me If you pray for five months and then you get the opening and Nehemiah did it. The rest of the book is awesome because he, he's, he's got it all in his mind. I think, I think throughout his praying, he just couldn't wait to get there to start rebuilding. So as Billy preached, as Billy preached last week, There are three things that hold us together as we mature in God and as we grow the church by making disciples, by planting new churches. We need to have no fear. We don't need to fear. We don't need FUD. FUD is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. We need to have faith, hope, and love. So we hold steady. Billy said, hold steady as the people of God. Continue to do what God has called us to do. Pray, pray, pray. We are participating in the restoration of the church, the temple of God, the house of God, 
Within us is Jesus Christ. He is our head. We are the body. We are the stones. We share our lives together in the building house of God. You are beautiful stones. And we build our lives together to build the church. We we build the church with prayer, and we build the church with the word of God. And finally, Jesus says, in in the answer to the question, Lord Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrites love to stand out in the street corners and out in the synagogue and they pray loud prayers. They want to be seen by by people. They want to be seen by all the men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Their egos have been satisfied just by that work. But when you pray, Jesus says, go into your room Close the door. Pray to your father. Pray like Nehemiah. Pray like Daniel. Who is, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Because he'll be the judge of your heart. And he will know if you're really into this for yourself or if you're into it for the body, for the temple, the building of the church. He will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. They think they're going to be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask. And God can know the the impulse of your heart and start sending angels, amazing angels, to start working on on your prayer even before you pray. God knows the motive of your heart. So this, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy, glorified is your name. You are awesome in your name, Father. God, we ask that your kingdom, that your holy city, that your realm would come on earth just as it is in heaven. We pray that your your kingdom would come. So we ask that you'd meet our needs for this task, that you'd give us bread. You know what we need, God. You know we need food. You know that we need resources. You know everything we need. So give us, give us what we need. Give us our bread. And forgive us. Oh God, the sin of our culture. Would you forgive us, God, as we forgive? Forgive us as we forgive. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, it literally means the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one who is stalking who is roaming, who's like a caged animal and roams to and fro, seeking whom to devour. But the people who know their God will will rise up and do exploits, who do the work of God. We are the church. We are the people of God. May God be praised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God that in all of your awesomeness, in all of your mighty works, in all of what you've done, you have displayed your glory and your power. We thank you for all those blessings. We, as your church, God, confess our sins, that the sins of our culture are on us, that we have sinned, that we have fallen so short of your glory and your power. God, forgive us. And as we come to you, God, We ask that you'd help us to build your church, that your kingdom would come, that it would be here and now among us, that wherever you are Lord, Jesus, there is your kingdom. And we thank you that you are Lord of this place. You are Lord over our lives. You are Lord over our families. Jesus, thank you for this blessing. Use us. Use us to build your kingdom in this place. 
In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. Turn to someone and say, I love worshiping God with you. Amen. You're dismissed.